Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast, a special Monday episode after a big weekend for the future of China geopolitics in the months and years to come. My name is Jared Watt, Specialist Digital Editor for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. And before we go any further, let me manage some expectations about how much news from Beijing you'll be getting in this episode. My extremely hardworking colleagues on the China desk have spent all weekend covering the 20th Party Congress in Beijing, and you can read the fruits of their labors on scmp.com right now. But also right now, most of them are taking Monday off. But we'll be putting together a special episode of our sister podcast, Inside China, tomorrow, which I hope you'll listen to for in-depth analysis of the future economic and geopolitical direction of Xi Jinping's China, But right now, I'm going to take you on a journey through time and space. You'll hear from our North American Bureau Chief, Rob Delaney, recorded early Friday morning Hong Kong time with two very significant stories regarding the US military and Taiwan, as well as what analysts and China watchers in Washington, D.C. were looking for as the 20th Party Congress reached its grand finale. But something else happened on Saturday involving Japan, much further south of the South China Sea. It's of major importance for the geopolitical future of East Asia, and that was a visit to the city of Perth in Western Australia by Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida and Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. Together, they made an announcement that is historic for Japan's self-defence forces and for Australia, which sounds very much like a new alliance, and very much like the Five Eyes Alliance between Western nations formalised back in 1956 is about to admit its first Asian member. That the announcement was made in Western Australia was also deeply symbolic because Australia's largest state currently enjoys a multi-billion dollar budget surplus thanks to its huge exports of iron ore and other minerals and energy to China over the past decade. A decade in which China has needed substantial amounts of iron ore for the rapid expansion of its navy. Already there's some speculation in Japan about what this new agreement means. Here's what Ichiro Asawa, a senior Japanese member of parliament and member of Fumio Kishida's government, tweeted earlier today. The Japan-Australia summit meeting in Perth on the 22nd was a very important meeting. Bearing in mind the situation in Taiwan and China's maritime advances, Japan and Australia will further evolve the quasi-alliance relationship for the stability and prosperity of the Indo-Pacific. At this time, it should be considered to rotate Australian troops to Okinawa. I want to increase deterrence to ensure peace. We're going to hear from SEMP's senior Asia correspondent Maria Sigao about that. But first, to our North American Bureau headquarters in Washington, D.C. Rob Delaney is our North American Bureau Chief in Washington, D.C. Rob, hello and welcome back to the podcast. Hello, Jared. It's great to be here. 
Rob, even though Xi Jinping and the cadre, the elite of the Chinese Communist Party, are behind closed doors this week, we've seen the US Navy, or at least one very senior member of it, manage to escalate tensions over the Taiwan Strait. What's happened? Yeah, well, uh, this is Admiral uh, Gilday, and he's he's the chief of the the, the U.S. Navy Navy fleet. He was uh, doing a, a bit of a discussion at Atlantic Council, and not surprisingly, China comes up very early on in the discussion. And the question that always comes up is about the the, the chances that the mainland's military is going to invade Taiwan. And he came out with this comment about, yeah, it, it, we're concerned about this and. Not only is it comments by President Xi Jinping at the National People's Congress, but it's also just as, as he described it, Chinese government tends to, when, when they make clear what their goal is, they tend to achieve it even before the deadline. So whenever they lay out a particular goal that they have and a time frame, the, what he sees is that Beijing managed to hit that target sooner than they planned. So they're looking at that assessment that was that we heard last year from a retiring Admiral Davidson, who and they, they're now calling it the Davidson timeline of 2027. And that's because Davidson said last year that he thinks that an invasion is likely to come within the next six years. And keep in mind, that wasn't really based on any particular at least we don't know that it was if it was based on any particular bit of evidence, credible evidence, or whether he this was just him putting together all the statements and and uh, and all of the reports and just coming up with that on his own. But whatever the case, that Davidson timeline has kind of become a thing. So when Admiral Gilday was pressed on that in his discussion yesterday. He said that, uh, okay, well, if you look at the pace at which Beijing tends to accomplish what it, is, what it set out to do, it tends to be sooner than we think. So if we're thinking about the Davidson timeline, let's consider that it might happen several years before that particular date. And he said this, this could happen as early as 2022. And uh, hey, there's not a lot of time left in 2022. So that sort of led him to segue into this idea that he's trying to prioritize this, what he's calling a fight tonight kind of posture, military posture, and meaning that the the military has quite uh, a lot of work to do and, and it must prioritize above any, everything the ability to be able to enter into a conflict if needed as soon as possible. And, you know, as, the, as that term suggests, could be tonight. That sounds very concerning, Rob, but I've got to just maybe just be a little bit cynical and ask, given that there's been no actual statement either from Xi Jinping or any significant troop movements or or, or naval movements that have been reported from the PLA, is it a funding time, a budget time for the US Navy? Bingo. Yep. (laughs) That's what a lot of analysts are saying. They're they're just pointing out, and you know, you have analysts who've been looking and looking deeply at, at all of the statements coming out of China, reading between the lines, and what they're saying is that there's nothing in there that that's any different from what we've heard from Beijing about the Taiwan situation in in recent years. 
So, uh, so yes. So a lot of them kind of turn that around and they say, well, look, it's natural for uh, leaders in the armed forces to be sounding these alarm bells because, and, and you're exactly right, this is the time of the year where Congress is finalizing its budget for the, the coming year for the military. And it wants, it's natural, they, they want to get as much as they possibly can. And so it doesn't hurt to have these sort of very concerning situation or to highlight them and to perhaps uh, make them sound a little more dire than they are. Well, it's always interesting to focus on who benefits from escalating tensions, you know, follow the money, as we as we say often in journalism. But what of this report earlier this week from Nikkei Asia that the Biden administration was considering a plan to jointly produce weapons with Taiwan? Has that been verified or confirmed in any way? It's not for lack of asking questions. Like, uh, for for example, we had um, my colleague, Kushbu Rosden, who is in New York, tuning into uh, Pentagon briefing, and, and that very question came up. Is the Biden administration really considering this plan to jointly produce weapons with Taiwan? And they refer the question to the White House. And, uh, of course, I, I tuned into, there was a briefing by the National Security Council spokesman um, John Kirby today. And, of course, that question came up. And, of course, National Security Council, the NSC, is basically the White House. So uh, he just dodged the question. He said, I've got no comments on that. And he said, uh, and, and then he just segued right into the standard language that we always hear. Uh, Nothing has changed, status quo. Uh, we, the Taiwan Relations Act, we abide by that. We abide by this, the, the joint communiques. And, and so there, there's no word there. We, we don't have any further information about whether or not that's actually happening. And, and it's also difficult to, to know. No one knows when, when they say jointly produce weapons with Taiwan. Is, what, what does that mean? Uh, producing them here? With, uh, is, is that just sort of transfer of technology? Is it jointly producing the, the actual hardware? We, we don't know. We don't have any details about this. What's being talked about in Washington, D.C.? What are the analysts focusing on with this 20th Party Congress? The analysts are just focusing on everyone knows what's going to happen. They may not know exactly who's going to be who's going to wind up in the Politburo or the Politburo Standing Committee. But, you know, one thing that's interesting over here, there's not a lot of debate about whether about the, the meaning of any reshuffle, only because there's just this understanding that Xi Jinping is in charge of everything. So it kind of doesn't matter. It's it's more about once the party congress is over, Xi Jinping is is starts his, his third term, uh, or is appointed to his third term. What's going to be? What effect is that going to have? It's the, you know the the mechanic or the personalities within the Politburo are not really a subject of uh, too much uh, of debate in Washington. It's really just a matter of once. Xi Jinping is ensconced in, in whatever level of power he's going to be, uh, he will have attained after the NPC. What does that mean for Beijing's policies? Will that give Xi Jinping more confidence to uh, perhaps drop this kind of wolf warrior approach to diplomacy that we've seen? Will that sort of confidence that he may have uh, now that he's consolidated his power base even further is that going to give them the confidence to, uh, to to kind of drop the the hardline wolf warrior approach, or would it would it just go the other direction? There's more speculation on how this will affect 
the way that the uh, Xi Jinping deals with the, uh, the, the fiscal pressure that many uh, local Chinese governments are currently under. Uh, there's there's a lot of signs that uh, that China is experiencing some um, some some pretty damaging uh, economic troubles at the moment. So it's not so much who's going to say what at the Politburo because everyone kind of knows what's going to be said. It's more uh, what does it all mean as it all gets wrapped up in terms of which direction uh, the uh, Xi Jinping is going to take once it's over. And I'm curious, given that. You know, in the media, we tend to put some cachet on, you know, either Xi Jinping calling another nation to congratulate the newly elected leader. Does Joe Biden ring up Xi Jinping and say, hey, congratulations on winning that one-man vote uh, to, to get a historic third term? And, of course, we're building up to this potential meeting of these two leaders at the G20 in Bali. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see the response, I guess, from from Joe Biden after this weekend, you know, that could go any way. Only, only you know, you you would expect that. I mean, throughout the the history, the the forty years of official diplomatic relations, you would always have some kind of acknowledgement uh, by the by the U.S. government. But you know, you look at what we've been through in the past year in terms of tension between U.S. and China. Um, it's actually a very good question. What will uh, w- w- will there be uh, any official statements at all? Uh, we, we don't know. You know, of course, we're coming up to midterm elections, so uh, any sign that Biden is being soft on China is uh, is, is wielded, uh, you know, quite effectively by the Republicans, uh, and and so I'm sure the Biden administration is quite a, well aware that if Biden signals any kind of acknowledgement at all of uh, the, the, the power that Xi Jinping wields, uh, or anything that's remotely congratulatory, that would be uh, that would be very tough. That's that, that's just handing the Republicans yet another uh, weapon to use uh, against Democrats, and you know considering that we're less than three weeks away from the midterm elections, it's, that would be uh, a difficult move for, for Biden to make. And that's interesting too, because, you know, on this side of the world, or indeed for our listeners who are outside of the US, uh, we just see the individual, you know, outrages committed by candidates or, or, or whatever, you know, outrageous statement was made by the, the MAGA right of the Republican Party. What's the forecast? Should the Republicans, you know, take the House, as they say in the US, in these midterm elections. Is there any forecast for a particular change in direction uh, in, in US policy towards China? Well, I mean, it's hardly even a forecast anymore that it's just, it's, it seems to be a foregone conclusion that Republicans are going to retake the House. Now the question is whether or not they'll also take the Senate. Um, e- even if they just retake the House, what that means is more pressure on the Biden administration to take a harder line on China. And I think it, it, you know, it doesn't matter how hard line the, the policies and the measures that Biden has taken already. It doesn't matter how hard line they are. It will never be hard line enough for a Republican controlled House and especially a, a Republican controlled Congress. But the difficulty there is just that, as we've seen, the Biden administration has taken a very tough line against China. We've seen them roll out measure after measure, restricting the amount of 
trade in, in, in chips and technology that can be done with China. They just continue to tighten it in ways that are already, that could have serious consequences for uh, comp- high-tech companies that rely on their trade to China. So really the, the Republicans could, they, they will put pressure on the Biden administration. They might in, insist that the Biden administration makes some significant change in, in policy towards the, the Taiwan Strait. Who, who knows what form that could take? Because as we've seen, the Republican Party has moved much further to the right. Their vitriol is much more extreme than it used to be. So, you know, it, it's not out of the realms to imagine that the House will start pushing new legislation that requires uh, the, the, the U.S. to take uh, a different approach to the uh, to, to the oft repeated uh, one China policy that it adopts. It's interesting you talk about the vitriol of the Republican Party. It's sometimes difficult to see who it dislikes more, China or the other part of the US represented by the Democrats. I often remind our listeners that back in September, we did an extensive interview with Jacob Fromer about this upcoming huge bundle of legislation known as the Taiwan Policy Act. There are some very big steps being made by the US with regards to Taiwan, this self-ruled island that Xi Jinping says he will reunite with the mainland. How far away are we from that act going before the House? Well, Congress is not in session now. They won't uh, come back into session until just before the Thanksgiving, uh, well, until sometime next month, uh, later next month. And the the thinking about the Taiwan Policy Act is that, of course, we, we saw there were a number of versions. Some of them are quite provocative uh, in, you know, f- for example, considering Taiwan to be a uh, major non-NATO ally. Uh, it, it, it's not likely that the more uh, that the more hardline elements of that bill will survive in in its final form. But and, and really, there's more talk now that instead of that particular bill passing on its own, it might perhaps get folded into the NDAA, the National um, uh, Defense Authorization Act, which is sort of that must pass legislation that funds the military. And we've seen that happen with uh, with several bills related to China, where uh, it's just it comes to the point where it looks like there are too many measures that too many members of Congress have issues with. And so they they kind of strip it down. They keep it to the, the, the heart of the legislation, which will in, in some form, it will require more funding, more support for the Taiwanese military. And then it looks, you know, my call, my guess would be that this winds up as legislation that just gets added to the NDAA, as opposed to being a bill that passes on its own. There's a lot going on. Uh, Rob Delaney in Washington, as always, thank you very much for your time and we'll look forward to your analysis and reporting on SEMP.com. Thanks. Great talking to you, Jared. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Over the weekend, the Prime Ministers of Australia and Japan met in the capital city of Western Australia, Perth, to announce a new agreement on security and energy. But it's not just what they announced, it's where they announced that's of great interest. Not only is there a sea change in the military relationship for the Australian Defence Forces and Japan's Self-Defence Forces, 
there's a deep change in Australia's relationship with Japan in a state which is a huge supplier of minerals and energy to China. My colleague Maria Xiao was reporting on this over the weekend. Maria, welcome back to the podcast. Well, Jared, thanks for having me. It's always good talking to you. Thank you very much. Now, Maria, let's just start with the headline. Why is this new deal between Australia and Japan such a landmark deal? Well, um, Jared, even though this new security deal, which is known officially as the Australia-Japan Joint Declaration on Security Cooperation, well, it does not specifically mention China, um, but there is little doubt that it is aimed at countering Beijing's um, growing influence in the region, which, as we have seen in recent months, have led to an increase in cooperation between Western powers and their Asian allies. So essentially, under this new security deal, greater cooperation will be in, in defence, um, where the armed forces of Japan and Australia will get to train together in war games in northern Australia. Um, and to explain why this is such a landmark deal, this is essentially um, the first such agreement that Japan has struck with any country in the world um, other than the United States. Apart from this defence cooperation, the two countries will also be sharing more sensitive intelligence. Um, as we know, both Japan and Australia, they do not have overseas intelligence operators that are on par with major Western intelligence organisations, but they do have strong intelligence capabilities and advanced satellites um, that provide intelligence on adversaries. So this is likely to be useful in that joint sharing of sensitive information. In fact, analysts also said that there are reasons to believe that this new security deal will help Japan to join the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Alliance, which, as we know, consists of Australia, Britain, Canada, New Zealand and the United States. And as Japanese Prime Minister Kishida said at a news conference over the weekend, uh, the new deal would be a compass that shows the direction of bilateral security and defence cooperation for the next 10 years. Um, his Australian counterpart said that the landmark declaration uh, will send a strong signal to the region of the two countries' strategic alignment. So what this new deal also does is that this is essentially an updated version of a 15-year-old agreement that was signed between the two countries in 2007. Of course, faced very different challenges then, such as issues of counterterrorism, weapons proliferation, and the concern over North Korea's missile and nuclear weapons program. As ever, Maria, you pack a lot into what you report. And let me just unpack a couple of things there. One of them is, as you suggested, the potential for Japan to join this Five Eyes Agreement, this intelligence sharing agreement between Canada, Australia, USA, New Zealand and the UK. And I'll have to speak to it. Technically, Anglo nations, you know, the Western nations, so to speak. This is a very much a landmark deal on that level. Plus, it's the first military agreement I've ever heard really specifically name land, sea, air and space as operational mm. theatres. Mm, definitely. I mean, um, this, this deal essentially because, you know, when it was forged in 2007, um, well, as we know, it was a very different world then, you know, and of course, the strategic landscape has changed drastically as we know it, you know, um, we know that there is the Russia invasion of Ukraine, you know, and with various challenges going on in the world now, um, there was really a need for, for the two countries to revamp um, the existing 2007 agreement, which incorporated a lot of changes in geopolitics as we see and China's growing belligerence and growing aggressive behaviour in the region. 
And of course, I'll have to speak to the history that goes back here between Australia and Japan. This year, 2022, is 80 years since the Japanese Air Force attacked a city in northwestern Western Australia, the city of Broome. Now, there's still monuments up about that. And of course, Japan attacked Darwin, the northern city uh, of the Northern Territory in Australia. And now, in this announcement, again, a landmark moment where Japan's self-defence forces might be coming to train in, in that city of Darwin. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, things in the world are really ironic. <laughs> you know, you never believe that this will, uh, we will come to this state. Um, well, it seems that apart from this stronger cooperation that we've mentioned in various security areas, what this new security pact will do uh, is also to strengthen cooperation between the two countries over the past 15 years, um, such as their agreements on information sharing, logistics, and military um, interoperability. What this means is that the two countries will also explore ways to jointly develop and produce military hardware. Um, they're also expected to work together on what some analysts describe as game-changing technologies, um, such as quantum computing, artificial intelligence, and hypersonics, and of course, with economic and energy security high on the agenda of virtually every country, um, given how this has been threatened by um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, both Japan and Australia will also see closer cooperation on energy security, supply chain resilience, as well as ensuring access to critical minerals and hydrogen production. In fact, you know we know that Japan has already established this cabinet-level economic security ministry um, to oversee its economic security strategy, something which Australia and other countries are likely to emulate, and I, you know, and they probably will. And of course, other areas of joint cooperation in the pipeline might also well include space security, cybersecurity, and also an emphasis on countering um, environmental security issues brought about by the problem of climate change. Well, that's an interesting thing, and this is where it gets really complicated, Maria, because Japan, as I understand it, is the second largest recipient of Australian coal exports after China. Uh, but of course, China is a huge investor in West Australian iron ore. There's also investment in lithium mining. There is so much natural resources being dug up out of Western Australia and shipped to China. And here we have the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida with Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese standing in Western Australia talking about a new energy resources deal. It's quite interesting. Can you tell us more about this new economic announcement? Part of it is um, due to the two countries' um, concern over how their economic security has been threatened by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, but on a large part, on the part of Japan, you know, Japan um, has very um, limited resources. It, turns to Australia for a wide range of resources, um, as you've rightly pointed out, especially in iron ore, and also in rare earth, you know, which um, is, of course, um, an important ingredient that is being used in all kinds of um, high-tech equipment. And I think there is this desire on the part of Japan also to reduce their reliance on China, because um, China right now is the largest uh, producer of rare earth, um, ranging from 60 to 80 percent, um, depending on how you um, define rare, rare earth. And I think since over the past few years, when China has emerged even more strongly as a threat to Japan, um, I think there is this desire from a part of Japan to move away um, from this greater reliance on China. And that's why they are looking to Australia in that sense. 
Maria, we already know that Australia has you know, signed numerous deals. You know, It's got AUKUS, uh, the Quad, uh, there's the ANZUS Treaty that it has with New Zealand and the US. So I guess that's not so much a bigger deal, but let's look at this from the Japanese perspective. Why is this such a momentous agreement for Japan to sign this kind of security agreement? Um, I think for the part of Japan, I think um, apart from the United States, um, I think they are trying to seek as many allies as possible, um, as many partners as possible within the region. And of course, because on the part of Japan, there is a great deal of concern about China's intentions um, and its efforts in military modernization, including building the world's largest navy, the revamping of its standing army, which incidentally is the world's largest. And in fact, um, China's defense budget has more than quadrupled since 2007. And of course, um, China's growing military activities in the Taiwan Strait and in the waters surrounding Japan, including near the Senkaku Islands, as the Japanese call it, or the Diaoyutai, according to the Chinese. These military activities are, of course, deeply worrying to Japan, uh, who is rightfully worried that China's continued efforts to establish what many describe as a new normal in Taiwan regarding the military activities in Taiwan. They are concerned that this might threaten regional peace and security, as we know it. So talking to you early Monday morning, Maria, I am curious, given your reporting, your analysis, opinion pieces on scmp.com about the view of Southeast Asia, Eastern Asia uh, towards China, how the changes in Beijing, how Xi Jinping's new Politburo and cabinet appointments might be viewed? As we know, the new Politburo standing committee is comprised largely of Mr. Xi's men, um, people who are closely allied with him, people that he has worked with, people who he trusts, um, people whom he knows and who goes back a long way with him. Um, so in that sense, I think domestically, um, he's going to be very strong um, in asserting his policies. Um, he's basically been rewarding his allies and people who fall in step with his policies, including um, the zero COVID policy, including the shutting down of Shanghai, which is um, essentially what Li Chang, the number two person has been doing, or the person who is going to be tipped to be number two. Um, so in terms of domestic, it's going to be very strong. And for policy-wise, um, I don't see any major fundamental difference. It's just not in China's interest to be overly aggressive and, and alienating neighboring countries ranging from Japan, Korea to Southeast Asia. So I think we can expect more of the same. Um, we can even expect wolf warrior diplomacy to go on. China is still going to be very aggressive and very assertive when it comes to um, stating its foreign policy position, um, just to make sure that they do not come across as being weak. You know, So pretty much I think that will go on. And my concern has always been about the lack of transparency um, in China's foreign policy. In one of my recent pieces, I've argued that China has been non-transparent when it comes to the Pacific Islands about a security treaty with the Solomon Islands. You know, we all know about the full text of um, the Solomon Islands security treaty with China is still under wraps, you know, and that can also be applied to um, China's um, lack of transparency when it comes to Cambodia. You know, um, there's rumors that it is building a military base there. Both Cambodia and China is denied, but we've seen satellite images um, that have shown like vast development, building of piers, reclaiming of land, you know. So, you know, what what really is unsettling, you know, for most of us, at least in Southeast Asia, is that it's not so much the military activities that are unnerving. It's probably the lack of transparency, you know. You can say that, you know, the two governments do not have to share information with anybody, you know, but 
what they are doing, you know, have a huge impact on security in the region. Um, and that is, of course, you know, a source of concern to us in the region. And of course, I think that is not likely to change with this new lineup that we've seen recently over the weekend. Maria, I feel like I have to bring you back on for another episode just to speak about this potential new base in Cambodia. And I say potential because, as you say, neither China nor Cambodia are saying it's a new cooperative military base. So we'll keep a watching brief on that. But until then, Maria Siao, our senior correspondent for Asia, thank you very much for your time and thank you for coming back to the podcast. Thanks, Piara. It's always nice talking to you and I look forward to talking to you again. That's all for this week's special Monday edition of China Geopolitics. As ever, head to scmp.com for all of the latest analysis of the 20th Party Congress, as well as breaking and developing news from across our region and from that nation struggling to find a Prime Minister off the coast of France. Follow us on Twitter at SCMP News. Stay safe. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.